America. The world's greatest wilderness. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We are not just documentaries narrated by old British men. We will not be summarized to our national parks or our tragedies. We are not caricatures of emotionless characters. We might laugh, but we are definitely not a joke. Our dreams are valid. Our hopes are valid. And we will change because we must. This is a compilation of our tales, our conflicts, our challenges, our solutions, our means, our hopes, our cultures, our futures, and our lives. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. Hello. Welcome back to Pod Save Africa. It's your host, Akande Adirili. And today I have another wonderful and fantastic guest that I'm really excited about. Um, I expect for a lot of things to be learned on this episode and a lot of fantastic conversations happen on this episode. Uh, he is Professor Olufemi Vaughn. Um, very incredibly accomplished. Has a lot of written work um, that you guys will find fascinating. We're going to talk a little bit more about that during the episode. And I'm going to have Professor Vaughn tell us a little bit more about himself. My name is Femi Vaughan. I'm the Alfred uh, Sergeant Lee and Mary Ames Professor of African Studies at Amherst College. Uh, prior to arriving at uh, Amherst this summer, um, I was the Geoffrey Canada Professor of African Studies and History at Bowdoin College. And prior to that, I was a professor at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where I also served as Associate Provost and Associate Dean. So I've been in the academy now for quite some time, 20, 27 years. I, I received my PhD in politics from Oxford University in 1989. I should also mention that I... I was born and raised in Ibadan, <laughs> southwestern Nigeria. That's extremely important to me. My area of research and scholarship revolves around uh, key questions on modern African history and uh, politics. I am particularly interested in the interactions between state society relations in post-colonial African societies. Uh, questions pertaining to issues of governance and development in post-colonial African states. Uh, new issues arising on migration and transnationalism mm-hmm. and globalization in the last few decades or so. And uh, finally, I am very much interested in subjects pertaining to religion and state-making in West Africa, particularly Nigeria. I'm particularly interested in, in the interactions between Christianity and Islam in the making of uh, the modern Nigerian state. So, in a nutshell, this is my general area of academic expertise and uh, professional interest. 
stress. That's that's quite a that's quite a breadth of expertise, sir. And uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing some more of your thoughts on that. Um, so I, I'd like to I'd like to uh, hop right in. You've told us a little bit a bit about your professional journey, but uh, if you don't mind me asking, perhaps perhaps a little more of a personal question: What drove you towards this field? Um, I often find it rare to see uh, Africans who have lived in Africa come to other countries and then study Africa. Uh, how did you? Why did you make those choices? Choices. Well, actually, it's not entirely unusual for Africans to study about Africa in the West. Hmm. Um, it's very common, in yeah. large measure, and in some ways, I think it, one can say that it's a bit unfortunate. But I don't quite see it that way. Some of the best institutions of higher learning and areas of expertise in African studies in the social sciences and the humanities and the sciences happen to be in leading universities in the West and in the Western world. That's true. Certainly in the United Kingdom, in the United States and France and so on. In the case of uh, the major European powers, it shouldn't be surprising to the degree that these are also the colonial powers in Africa. So part of the colonial project as one would imagine, is also to study the colonial subject. Mm. Uh, so many leading Western universities as imperial powers also established quite extensive um, expertise in, mm. in studying African realities, African experiences, African cultures, African peoples, religions, ethnography, politics, and, and so on. Mm. Um, in this country, for example, in the United States, some of the leading centers of African studies and the humanities and the social sciences and the arts and music happen to be, um, you know, universities such as University of Wisconsin-Madison is a leading place, UCLA is another leading place. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and has been, by the way, for Northwestern University outside of Chicago, yeah. a leading a university to study African issues, Indiana University of Bloomington. Mm. You will see that I, and then of course, you know, the the top Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale and Princeton have been exceptional places training Africanists, including African scholars, for well over two generations. I see. In, in, in Britain, Oxford and Cambridge are always leaders in African studies. One of the most uh, renowned places for the study of Africa is a part of the University of London College called SOAS. I'm sure you must have heard of SOAS School of mm-hmm. Oriental and African Studies. So, yep. so, so the leading, it's, uh, the, the point is that um, there's a long tradition of Africans leaving Africa to, Just... to study um, various aspects of African African issues all around all around the Western world. Hmm. I suppose what we would we should hope for is that and, and I should mention um, over the years, particularly as a consequence of decolonization, the first two decades of independence, yes. African universities were able to build up some really outstanding academic programs also 
although because of the crisis of the state that so many African countries encountered since mm -hmm. the 1980s, most of these universities have suffered significantly at the African Studies programs and the humanities and the social sciences and the arts have also, you know, suffered. Yes. Um, University right. of Ibadan used to be a key leader mm -hmm. in various aspects of African studies in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Right. Its history department was one of the very best. It's actually called the Ibadan School of History. Yeah. In the study of Africa, uh, University of Dar es Salaam used to be a, a key leader in the African humanities. Um, the list goes on. In Nigeria, Madubelo University was one of the key leaders in in the study of the you know the Sahel and the Islamic world in in the Sahel and in the Maghreb. study of ourselves at, 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 at I think we all have a better understanding of, of your journey thus far and that's in context with everybody else's and, and why we're here. I myself uh, came to study in the States as well for reasons similar. Um, my parents, was, my father who studied the same degree, um, didn't have to leave the country to do so, whereas uh, uh, it was a better decision for me to do so. Um, uh, and now uh, speaking more about leaving the country and uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier was our, our colonial, effectively our colonial masters have had interest in studying us. Now, I, I would ask, is this, is this, a, did it, was, did this start pre-colonialism or post-colonialism? Because certain things would suggest that that's not necessarily the case. And from just a broad view, um, how our countries were all, uh, you know, stitched together, together with, that's, that seems to be a very ill-informed process. Some of the comments made by, uh, colonial officers about African shows a, a lack of actual insight into how we actually were and, and things like that. But, you know, is this process of studying us new or has this always happened even still since, you know, before the time we were colonized? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a bit of an unusual, somewhat unique perspective in the ways in which I think about and encourage my students to reflect on the subject of colonialism. Uh, I always want to strive to come to the subject from the bottom up, not from the top down. Okay. And that is really to, to switch things around. It's a, 
a threat of a paradigm shift. Yeah. In other words, rather than preoccupy ourselves with what is already well known and obvious, yeah. that is what we talk about, what the colonialists do to Africans. Yeah. I think it will be a very interesting idea to contemplate what Africans are doing to overcome the, the venom of colonialism, of mm. colonial incursion and colonial brutality. Mm. If you see what I mean, uh, in a way that we can contemplate the possibility of African ingenuity, huh. creativity, and imagination. So rather than celebrate... Huh. Absolutely. Rather than just simply think of the ways in which colonial rulers are conceiving of colonial policies and implementing mm -hmm. those policies. Right. I mean, after all, those policies will have to resonate somewhere with some people. Yes. So for me, African agency is central to the ways in which I engage colonial discourse. Okay. I don't mean in any way to dismiss the importance of the imperial project yeah. and the colonial project. It's extremely important to pay attention to it without any question. It's extremely exploitative, it's dehumanizing, it's brutal, and it's vicious. Yes. And its brutality varies significantly from region to region. For example, in settler colonies in South Africa, in Southern Africa more broadly, mm -hmm. in what used to be Zimbabwe, for example, in East Africa, in Kenya, those settler colonies, in the case of the Maghreb, we know the story very well of Algeria and the French. Yeah. So, and then of course, the brutality of colonialism in the Belgian Congo is very well known. Yes. The brutality of colonialism in Lusophone Africa is also very well known in Angola, Mozambique, mm. and Guinea-Bissau, and Cape Verde. So we know those stories very well, and we should underscore their significance from a political point of view, from a military point of view, from an economic point of view. They are devastating in their capacity to dehumanize people. Yeah. We have to engage those issues very seriously, and we have to engage their implications and consequences very seriously. And the ways in which that has structurally has transformed African realities, even up to today. Yes. Right? So it's a process, not an event. It's, it's ongoing. Absolutely. Yeah. Having said that, yes. Having said all of that, we also know one thing, but we don't really engage it. Africans were making their own history in the face of colonial brutality yes. and colonial dehumanization. Hmm. Can you expand me, on that? that? For me, that is the central question. Huh. That is the central question. That is the beginning of the discourse. Of course, not the end of it. Hmm. So it is in the context of colonial invasion and colonialism and colonial exploitation that different African societies were able to remake their own history. Hmm. 
not just simply resist colonialism, but also it's in that context that they imagined a new world, a new possibility, a new a new way of making history. Mm. As women, as men, as poor people, as mm. entrepreneurs, as peasant farmers, as traders, as people who were migrating in large numbers from rural communities to urban areas looking for you know new jobs and building new cities. Mm-hmm. Most of the great modern African cities were largely cities that emerged out of colonialism. Yes. So I think it's really very important to think about those kinds of issues in, in very real and tangible ways. But there's another layer to the extent to which we overemphasize the significance of the colonial in a kind of a top-down project. Mm-hmm. Before colonialism, Africans were already making their own history. Yes. So I think it's really very important to know that the pre-colonial experiences of Africans are significant. Yeah. It's often easy to forget. The colonial. To the degree that you have to graft a colonial project, its administrative structure, legal, political, economic, social, mm. whatever, on something that is already there before. I see. So colonial projects, by their very nature, are really about the, 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 the possibility of manipulation. Mm. Right. People say so much about divide and rule, divide and conquer, the interact rule system, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you're building that project on something already there. And right. in the process, you're distorting what is already there. We need to account for that kind of distortion. Yeah. Right. And we need to also understand how that distorted history is mm. oftentimes packaged as African traditions. I see. Right. Right. Packaged as, but they're really new traditions. Right. Could you give examples of this, perhaps? Oh, chieftainsy will be a, a case in point. I mean, you know, okay. I, I studied African political, inst- indigenous political institutions for the first 20 years of my career. Wow. And I, I wrote quite extensively on the subject uh, with, 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 you know, I, I say this without, in all modesty, <laughs> um, this, my, my scholarship on the subject remains arguably, at least of my generation. I think the, the, I, you shouldn't be saying this about yourself. <laughs> Please go ahead. I think it's well deserved. The record will speak for itself on yes. this particular subject. So it's a subject I know very well and one in which I built an initial career. I don't write about, African traditional political and social authorities anymore, but I, I did all through the late 1980s and 1990s, yes. up till about the turn of the century, and then I stopped and I started doing something else. So, um, so just to give that example, the, the much of what the British and the Belgians used to govern African societies in terms of what they define as the local, the, the native authorities, that's the term the British used. Yes. The native administrative system was really co-opting African traditional political structures. And if you go through that process of co-optation, 
naturally you will have to use one potentate of tradition to undermine another potentate. It's only to be expected. So the subject of using traditional African political systems to govern Africans in a colonial context, itself very much a distortion, right? It's Hmm. really a mastery of manipulation. I see. And and, uh, and, um, essentially pitching one class of people, one ruler against another, Hmm. picking and choosing which potentate will do your beatings. Many African rulers were deposed and exiled. People yeah. don't like to talk. Yeah. The about k- uh, King of right. Benin has a famous example. Oh, and amongst many, many others. So, so the subject of British colonialism in Africa is really one of a story of deposition and uh, subverting tradition. So that sometimes what we what we want to understand as tradition is in fact travesty, huh. right? Yeah, but we've but because we haven't really taken the time to explore those issues systematically to study them, we've come to believe that uh, they're in fact the real tradition. Hmm. So, so the, the, there are many, many such examples all over Africa. You know, Southern Africa is replete with many examples in Zimbabwe, too many to count. Hmm. Mozambique, Angola, too many to count. Uh, in West Africa, from Ghana to Anglophone West Africa, just many, many examples. Nigeria, Northern Nigeria is full of those stories, and the Yoruba region, where I'm from, has many of such uh, yes. uh, processes of distortion. So, yes. anyway, huh. um, uh, I guess the point here is that when we engage the subject of the colonial, we don't want to simplify it yes. into a binary of the colonizer and yes, the colonized. Right. It's too simplistic, it's too straightforward, it's too predictable. Hmm. Right? So what is it's really very much it's vague and ambiguous. Right. It's the ambiguities of colonialism that is intellectually interesting to me. And we end up giving them too much credit for Absolutely. Absolutely. So in the process in the process, yes, we should account for the extreme and we also need to recognize that that colonialism is not the same in all places at all times. Obviously they're changing all the time. Yes. Colonialism in northern Nigeria is very different. From colonialism in the in yes. at the same time, by the way, mm-hmm. in the Kenyan White Highlands, huh. White Highlands, yeah, it's very different because because the social realities in those two places are very different. I see. Northern Nigeria has a long history of an engagement with Islam in the Sahel, going back several centuries, right. with well-established emirate structures, having gone through a major Islamic reformism in the Jihad of Usman al-Fodio, mm-hmm. Sokoto Jihad. The British built their project, their imperial colonial. Hello, I apologize for interrupting your episode again. This is your host. And I'd just like to talk very briefly about the tragedy in Sierra Leone over the past couple of weeks. Um, a terrible tragedy happened when uh, 
heavy rains and flooding led to mudslides that have killed upwards of 400 people. Uh, mass burials have been undergone in Sierra Leone and uh, they are in need of urgent support to find the missing and to bury the dead. Um, I believe that we as Africans should come together and support our fellow Africans. Uh, I will put links in the description and the notes for supporting it and I encourage you to pray for the country itself as it recovers from this terrible uh, tragedy and do all you can to reach out to your friends that are perhaps from that country and might be affected. Uh, thank you very much and uh, please continue to listen. Which is surprising, right? Relative to what they did in southern Nigeria. Yeah, absolutely. And what they did in southern Nigeria was different. What they did at the same time, at the turn of the 20th century in Zimbabwe, was very different. Hmm. Because the social context, the political context is different. Do you see the point I'm trying to Yes. And of course, in part because, I mean, in the case of Zimbabwe and, 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 and Kenya, you have to contend with a settler British population, mm. white population, yes. in ways in which you don't have to worry about about speaking to the interest of a, of a settler population in West Africa. West Africa is not a settler colony. Yes, that's true. You know, the envir- environmental, ecological conditions are not conducive to Europeans mm. living in West Africa in large numbers. Whereas in the case of Southern Africa, you know, the conditions are conducive, economic, environmental, and and so on. East Africa is the same. So all these questions are important. And that's something we don't really think about. Oh, yeah. We we need to think about about colonialism and the landscape, colonialism and the environment, colonialism and ecology, colonialism and and demography. We, we tend to just simplify colonialism into a very rigid category of the colonized and the colonizer. I, I do the have... colonizer did this to the colonized. colonized. The oppressor versus the victim. We never say anything about what the colonial subjects are, how they're responding, huh. except occasionally we'll say, well, they resist militarily. Right. And those who resisted at the point of colonial, what? Conquest, oftentimes celebrated as what has yes. iconic right. figures who who stood up against the great imperial powers, huh. and they they speak to a particular nationalist history that dominate much of Africa's historical writings yeah. in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Was that perhaps that kind, a sorry that my, kind of history? Right, yes. is extremely limited because yes. it really doesn't speak to the realities of real ordinary people as mm. women and men. Mm. Right. So history is exciting and fascinating and imaginative, but difficult mm. when we begin to situate it where it ought to reside among real people. Mm. Their aspirations, where they breathe, where they make their history, where they make their world anew. Is this a kind of a people's history is extremely important too. They're not easy to do. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're difficult to do. Because in, in doing a people's history that is creative, 
creative and imaginative, you have to see how the social, the economic, the political, how questions of migration and demography, ideas and materials come together. Social currents are moving back and forth. They're not always moving in one direction and playing funny tricks on you. And they're oftentimes quite unpredictable. So what is virtuous and what is vice is not always clearly, clear, clear, it's not always distinctive. Right. And that is where I think colonial history, as indeed also post-colonial history, becomes very exciting and fascinating. Hmm. Um, history as a subject, I am not trained as an historian, I'm a political scientist by training. I see. Although I've worked in an industry department now for 27 years. Wow. I've had a good fortune, however, of being trained by some of the leading historians of Africa uh, as a graduate student. My old teacher who passed away a couple of years ago, Terence Ranger, was one of the leading historians of Africa in the English-speaking world hmm. for easily his entire generation. Antonika Green also, who is the great historian of northern Nigeria, was an old teacher of mine. Gavin Williams, the great political sociologist of Nigeria. I was fortunate to 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 be in the company of 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 scholars who, even when they're not historians, their work took historicity very seriously. They were always thinking about the long array of the human experience. Hmm. That structures matter a great deal. Hmm. Structures are by their very nature extremely difficult to change. Hmm. They're very they they have I I say here structures as opposed to say institutions. Right. Why do you draw that yeah. distinction? There's a very structures. Institutions in my mind you can create. Right? You can invent an institution. You mm-hmm. cannot invent or create a structure. I see. Right. That is the key distinction. A structure comes out of the inner belly of the experience of a people over time, over many, many generations, over centuries. Mm. Right. So you can observe a structure, obviously, in a people, in their ideas, in their mm. practices, in their ideologies, in their religion, their religious practice, in their cosmology. Hmm. Right. You can observe it and reflect upon it in terms of the ways in which they engage their their ancestors, for example, that you cannot see in a very invisible world. Right. In terms of Africans, people argue are spirit people. Structures are about spirits. And spirits are about structures. Hmm. So some structures you can observe. Some structures you just simply cannot see. They they reside in the values of people over time. That okay. is the distinction between structures and institutions. All right. So institutions are very much something that is essentially is essentially uh, very uh, institutions are temporal, if you if you will. I see. Right. Structures can move between what is temporal and what is transcendence. Right. What is secular and what is spiritual? Hmm. Right. So, so structures are things we pass down from 
from generation to generation to generation. Structures in that regard don't die. Institutions, however, do. I see. If, if I were to take a, a personal lesson for people like me um, and myself, I, I'm, I'm hearing, and you can correct me if this is wrong, is that we perhaps should be, for people interested in change, should be looking more towards um, modifying, ob- observing, understanding, and then modifying existing structures as yeah. opposed to attempting to invent new institutions because... Uh, 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 you, 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 you said it very well. You said it more eloquently than I can ever say it. <laughs> you know, just you. very much, if you, forgive me for saying this, just very much with the brilliance of, of youth. And, you know, it, it, you, I, what I said in about 10, 15, 20 sentences, you boil it down to two sentences. Good. I, I was just and understanding you, sir. And you, you essentially nailed it. Thank so you. that, to give an example, in our very current reality for your generation, as opposed to say my generation, so I'm aging myself. I would, I don't want to be presumptuous. I would imagine that I'm a generation ahead of you. That's my well, sir. I have no problem. I'm in my early twenties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so now, since the world that you occupy, and I hope we'll get to talk a bit more about this later, yeah. is what I refer to as the age of globalization. You are the generation of the global era, the global age. Mm-hmm. Your generation can see what my generation just simply cannot see. Mm. Because in your generation, what is local, right, what is national, what is transnational, especially for those who are socially mobile like you, oftentimes those spaces are collapsed into each other, right? Mm. So you can actually reside in so many different spaces at the same time in the global era. I am a kid of the 70s. For the most part, I can just reside in one place in Ibadan. <laughs> if I write a letter to relatives somewhere else, I'm just writing a letter to them. Mm-hmm. I'm living in a very Ibadan world. Yeah. Someone now of my social class, of a similar social class, given the new technologies that we have, new forms of social interactions, that individual is actually occupying so many different spaces and practicing so many different rituals and religions and economic activities at the same time, Hmm. all at once. See, those kinds of questions play out within the context of the flexibility, the malleability, the the imaginative capacity of African African structures. What is keeping them going is actually the traditions, the old age traditions of African societies. Without them knowing that is actually what's going on. Those values and practices are still there. I see. In a postmodern world. And that is so what is providing the stability in a state of of great confusion, dislocation, instability, is the structures of African realities going back in time. So you are able to have interesting conversations across the generation. And even with people who are long gone, as you reside in Sobobia, Chicago, 
you see what I mean. Uh, I see. So, so you take that with you everywhere you go. Uh, we see this, for example, in new Pentecostal movements in African and new African diasporic transnational realities. See. Just as one example, Africans are people of powerful expression of faith. Yes. Whether as Christians or Muslims or adherents of indigenous African religious beliefs and practices. Mm-hmm. But I always tell people all the time that irrespective of their level of education, whether they're scientists, mathematicians, PhDs, what have you, their profound spirituality is expressed in their collective manifestation of their rituals and their religion. So Nigerians and Ghanaians, for example, will always find if they're Christians and people who are connected to charismatic Christianity, they always have their own national, even sometimes ethno-national Pentecostal charismatic churches they go to Yes, uh, every Sunday, <laughs> every Wednesday. That mm-hmm. is really where they feel comfortable. They feel that's their safe space in an alien environment. It's not just simply a place where they go to worship and pray to their God. They're passionate about their faith, to be sure, because they do believe, right, that the spirit world is with them, and they have to engage the spirit world. But it's also a place where they go unconsciously, and sometimes very consciously, to address everyday problems. I see. Those Quintinian issues, as well as also the vicissitudes of life. If they have challenges with their children, where do they go? Do they go to a social worker who doesn't quite understand anything about their emotions, their culture, their reality? No. Mm -hmm. Do they go to a Western psychologist who who doesn't believe in their humanity? I don't think so. They may go to that, to be sure, because they're advised to do so. So they do that. But they also go to their local charismatic Pentecostal churches where they have deep and comprehensive community where their emotions their feelings their experiences are validated where people help them you you don't have to we all want to be in a place where people can finish our sentences yeah (laughs) yeah right yeah that is true not a place where people are asking us to explain our sentences or to repeat them or to repeat what we've just said. Yes, yes. Uh, right. So I, how many times as an, Af- as an African in the West the people who told you to repeat what you've said? No, no, it's not that they no. can't hear you. Yeah. It's not because you're speaking a strange language. It's because they really don't understand what you're saying. And sometimes they don't want to understand what it is you're saying or even mm. respect what you have to say. Mm. We, we all want to be in a place where we're naturally, instinctively validated. I see. Uh, and we're made like that as humans. That is not an African thing. That's a human thing. Yeah. We don't want to be in a place where we're we're perceived to be what aliens. Yes. Where we're alienated. So Africans naturally go to those spaces. Huh. And and I think age. I think you. And that's where they bridge the generational divide. So when people say that young Africans are doing well in the UK, in the US, in Canada, right. they're getting to good universities and medical schools and right. and doing all these things, I said, well, big deal, right? Yeah, for one thing, they're kids of relatively 
well-to-do people, to be sure. Oftentimes. Their parents have good degrees. Yeah. They're all very well-educated. They're drawing on the social power, the social capital they brought back from African countries. Yeah. That's true. In a Western alien environment, where people expect them not to do well, even if their kids are refugees, where yeah. their societies have been completely dislocated in Somalia, mm-hmm or in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, or what have you, they quickly constitute themselves, huh. right? And uh-huh. they find a way to take advantage of the system. Everybody else is complaining. They'll find themselves in a the local community college very, very quickly. Right, that's true. Very quickly. They're learning a skill very quickly. Hmm. Whether as Muslims or Christians, it really doesn't matter. So... Hmm. It is well known that uh, in those areas where you have relatively large refugee African populations, Hmm. a large proportion of the children of these refugees are actually a major population in local community colleges. And most of them within six years will finish a four-year degree. Their parents, these are kids who, by the way, have lived and grew up as refugees, moving from one refugee camp to another. Yeah, they've had it the worst. From all they know in their lives, essentially, is moving from Somalia refugee camps to Kenya to, to, you know, to Cairo, and then eventually to the West. And within the West, they move from perhaps uh, suburbia, Atlanta, and then they find themselves in Maine or Idaho or whatever. Finally, they're raising their kids in a very alien environment where the local people just don't know anything about their culture. Who knows anything in, in these communities about the cultures of African societies? But they find a way. Where that element of ingenuity and creativity comes in, which I spoke about earlier. Yeah. They find a way when people believe there's no way. Yeah. They find a way, and, and but we don't know their stories, right? We don't know their stories. And, and because we don't know their stories, because we don't care about their stories, because we're not paying attention to what they have to say. All we know is things that are what imploding. Yeah. Yeah, we're not really paying attention to the processes of reconstruction and reconstitution. Hi. It's me again, interrupting your listening again. Sorry about that. I just wanted to thank you for subscribing and listening to this episode. I actually also would like to invite you, if you have anything you really care about and you'd love to share with the world, please reach out to me at podsaveafrica at gmail.com and enjoy the rest of your listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. And don't forget to share, like, subscribe, Rate me on iTunes. Tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, and tell your enemies too. They deserve to listen to Pots of Africa too. Bye. And speaking on the processes of reconstitution, I'm addressing religion specifically. 
Um, I find more often than not, because of that narrative that has been often created, uh, you know, stunningly a 180 from what you've just uh, expressed, that religion is actually more of a hindrance in, in, in our country, in our communities, or in more, more of a divisive rhetoric, as opposed to something that is used to unite us both uh, on the continent and and. And elsewhere, um, I find, at least in my experience in, in speaking and interacting with many Africans um, that are abroad, uh, we either oftentimes want to ignore religion in, in its entirety, um, almost such as the way we like to ignore tribal uh, uniquenesses and differences. Um, or, you know, a lot of people now, and, and this, I don't know if this might surprise you, a lot of people are uh, becoming non theistic in, in, in its entirety because of that negative reaction um, to the influence of religion on, on our community. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, story a couple of days ago that uh, kind of, you know, blew up and continued to blow up about a church in uh, Nigeria that, that was attacked and, and a bunch of people were killed. And it turns out that there's a whole scheme of uh, criminals funding. Uh, uh, institutions like that. Um, so, so when we see that as the prevailing uh, narrative, like you said, imploding, um, a, a lot of people of this generation who are interested in progress in one in one form or another um, are starting to look at 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 you know either ignoring. Uh, the faith and to, the community of faith, whatever uh, uh, form that comes in, and and uh, you know are trying to navigate around that because we've only understood it to be divisive and and haven't quite seen perhaps some of the things you've discussed just now. So, if you were to you know, is this a good approach to take? First of all, I, I, and uh, if if you don't think it is, um, what would be your uh, your thoughts to share with somebody like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the way you you presented this. You, you said it very well. I, I think what what is important here is to try and separate out what is constant and what is new, right? Hmm. So let me just sort of take a, a stab at what I think is a constant. In other words, by a constant, I think what my generation and your generation can wrap our heads around. Okay. And I would imagine perhaps my parents' generation too. That as we travel life's journey, we move. We, for those of us who, who are people of faith, and I believe that most Africans are, yeah. I believe that most Africans are actually more spiritual people yeah. more than people of faith. I think there's a distinction there. Okay. To the degree that. In, in in Africa in the African experience it is not really about faith it's not really about religion as an institution right it's about a cosmological experience it's about cosmology I see right so that is really where you want to start the conversation it's about inhabiting a spirit world right that is the beginning of it. So there's no word for religion in most African languages. In Yoruba, there's no word for religion. Yeah. There are words for rituals. Right. Yeah. There are, there are words for belief or non-belief, but there's no word for religion. Hmm. So the very idea 
idea of religion itself comes out of a particular Eurocentric notion of modernity. I see. I, I never really thought yeah. about that. Think about it that way. Yeah. For what we call religion to make sense to an African, it must resonate in their spiritual consciousness, in their cosmology. So oftentimes when Africans are engaging in discussions of religion, in the world the world religions, for example, Christianity and Islam, those, those conversations, and they go through a complex process of translation within African cosmology. A world in which, I mean, in, in many African experiences, the reality of heaven and earth is a lot more complicated than we see in the world, in Africa's two dominant world religions of Islam and Christianity. Yeah. Right. So, um, so what we tend to do unconsciously over the generations is to translate world religions Right, whether it's Christianity or Islam, yes. whether it's uh, Anglicanism or Catholicism or Pentecostalism, we're translating them in very dynamic ways into notions of African cosmology, even as we reject African cosmology, if you see what I... So we're saying on the one hand that the, the world of the African religion is something we don't do anymore. Yeah. Because it's now the world of what Satan and evil, right. and yeah, right. it's been reduced by missionaries to that, huh. and it's also been defined by 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 Islamic orthodoxy as such. Something you have to move away from. Hmm. But guess what? To the degree that religion, for religion to work, for people who occupy a spirit world to function every single day. That religious experience, that is what we call religion, must resonate in the human consciousness hmm. and the subconscious. Are you, do you see the point I'm making now? Yes. So in, in that vein, in that vein, spirituality is there, even yeah. when we ignore it. So in a sense, we... So, so, we're, so we're trying all the time we're, we're doing this basic math unconsciously. We want to expand the scope and deepen the essence of good spirits around us. Hmm. Right? Yes. To protect us. Right. To defend us and our loved ones, our children, our parents, our siblings, hmm. our lovers. <laughs> right? Right. Against what? Against evil spirits. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's about spirit warfare. <laughs> so Christ, if you're a Christian, in the Yoruba, in the Nigerian, in the African context, our Christ is not meek and mild. Our right. Christ is what? A warrior. It's a strong, powerful Christ. Right. A Christ that can defend us huh. against horrible things, can defend our loved ones can protect us. Hmm. Well, if, yeah. you, if you see the name, we can shout to them. What? If, well, sometimes the way we shout to the, you know, the Jesu, Jesu, Jesu. That is why, guess what? We call on him. Hmm. We praise him to the high heavens. We glorify him. Hmm. We sing and dance his grace and glory.
the champion of life here and beyond. And we recognize that because we want the spirit to do what? To come down now, not tomorrow. <laughs> now, the second, come down now. And what? Defend me. Right. And protect me and advance me. I see. Mm-hmm. So, so, to what? To get into a good school. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To get into a good Ivy League university, to get right. into into a good liberal arts college, to get into a good medical school. I mean, I'm not stupid. I know I have to study. Mm. We know already, prayer without work is nothing. Mm. Guess what? Work without prayer is equally nothing. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. the African world. You I have see. to do both in tandem, right. 24-7. So to some degree, we've... We've modified... 24-7. See, that is the African spirit world. I see. Operating. Whether it's in Brazil, in Atlanta, or in in Nigeria, it is essentially the same thing. Whether it is 500 years ago or this year, it is a very similar process. Whether it's in the Nigerian, Ghanaian, uh, Kenyan Pentecostal Church in London, in Birmingham, in New York, in Chicago, or it's in some Aladra church somewhere, (laughs) uh, you know, in the outskirts of Lagos. So we've modified religion to fit... Whether it's a new revivalist, mainstream Protestant and Catholic churches that are becoming more charismatic every single day in in African countries. So people say this all, you know, these are the realities. So I, it, look, and, and I think I think it's okay that when people are younger, they become ambivalent about religion, especially when they're relatively well educated. I see. Why, why do you think and so? And when their world is a bit a bit removed from an African reality, so so it's okay. That does happen. It happens in my generation too, by the way. You know what I mean? It's a time when I always is a time when you. you it's the moment when you take time away from church, if you're a Christian. Right. Yeah. You know, we know what that age is. It's, it's usually 20-something. <laughs> I tell all the time, eventually you'll go back. Right. Right. You'll go back and you start doing all the things you said you would never do that your parents used to do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so in a, in, a, in a sense, so I, I, I think it's really very important to 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 uh, to know that there's a very extensive scholarship on the subject mm. of some of the most amazing scholars of the subject I mean a guy by the name of Robin Hutton H-O-R-T-O-N the young Robin Hutton who lived his life at the at Calabar taught at the University of Calabar and theorized some of these things I'm talking about wow and then another guy who passed away, a brilliant English book, by the way, both of them English, by the name of John Peel, J.D.Y. Peel, worked in Ife and Elisha, taught at the University of Ife. Wow, I went to years. high school in Elisha. What? I went to high school in Elisha. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and, and was a professor at Soares. He died a few years ago. And there are so many others. I mean, the, the, there's a, a renowned Nigerian professor at Harvard, Jacobo Lupono. The leading scholar of the subject wrote this wonderful book for Oxford that it's a must read. 
what's it called, if you don't mind sharing? It's, it's actually called the Oxford M, but the Oxford book on uh, history of religion, something like that. You can Google it, you'll get it. Okay. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a short history of, of, of African religion. I see. Okay. Yeah. So, so and it's the kind of book you can read in virtually in, a, in four or five days. It's so well written. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, there's Oxford handbook for uh, history of everything now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the series started about 10 years ago. Oh, so. Wow. Pick the subject that, you know, they, they, well, it, it's, it's constructed, sorry to go off topic. No, please go ahead. To literally capture every single important issue that okay. humans have ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And to write it in such a way that the intelligible lay learner can read it from quantum physics to African religions. Wow. wow. And, and read it in a week and say, well, now I know something about quantum physics. Okay. Wow. Although I never passed physics in high school. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I had to look into, into that as well. I struggle with quite yeah, a few subjects. Anyway, so, so I, I, think, I think it's really very, I guess the point I'm trying to make is this. We, we draw conclusions, we make authoritative pronouncement on many subjects of which we know very little. That is true. Because, not because we're arrogant, but because, just because we haven't, until you tell people, have you really studied it? And they say, oh no, I haven't. But you just made this authoritative statement about what you think is going on. Right. But you haven't studied it. Fair enough. So, we, you know, African realities are like that. It's something that people think they don't have to study because right. Africans are not supposed to be taken seriously. I see. Yeah. If you see what I mean, Europeans yeah. are supposed to be taken seriously. So guess what? We study everything about Europe and European experiences, right? Before we, before we make pronouncements, not in the case of Africa. Yeah, so this issue about religion is the case in point. Yeah. The issue for me is a lot more complicated than that. How so? Than what people, than what? Uh, how so? I mean, just that, that, just what people tend to, to make it to be. Right, okay. that the, the generational question you raised, for example. Right. I'm just sort of saying, you know, when you look at the evidence, the evidence just may will will prove that to be what not the case. I see. If you see what I mean, most mm -hmm. diasporic African kids, mm -hmm. right, hang out in churches with their parents. They don't necessarily process religion the way their parents do. Right. They may go to the church for other reasons, right? Not necessarily to have a spiritual experience because they don't, they're too young to have such. Right. They could very well go just to go and see their friends, hmm. who they like to see, who is very much like them, who can finish their sentences for them. I see. I see. So friendship in, in this experience is much deeper, more meaningful, more powerful. Than friendship in school, yeah. where you're an alien, right. and where you feel uncomfortable, where people laugh at you when you talk about what is African. Hmm. Here, you happen to be in an African, charismatic, Pentecostal church, where everything that is African, at least African of your experience, is celebrated. Hmm. And recognize as intrinsically valuable and meaningful and powerful. 
powerful and rich and exciting and what? And fun. <laughs> yeah. Hardly and guess you. what? I'm only nine years old for crying out loud. That's all I need. Right. I don't want to be in a, an environment where when I say my parents do this or they cook that food mm-hmm. and people just sort of what? Laugh. Or ignore it. Yeah. So, so now you can see the distinction here between between an African community church. Why it will make perfect sense for somebody, for Africans to get up in Canada, in the US, in the UK, and travel 30, 40 minutes to their Pentecostal church right. or their Sufi mosque. And in the process, they've passed at least 10 churches. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a convenience issue. It, it, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a question of confirmation and validation. Hmm. I see. That is what the Spirit wants. Hey, thanks for listening to Pod Save Africa. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Part two of this episode will continue next week with more on politics, religion, and Africa. See you then. Nati nati bongo, shana na shana na do. Ya yo, shana na shana na do. Nati nati bongo.